folks, welcome back to As Lutheran As It Gets. This is our magnificent meditation on Martin Luther's Magnificat, or something like that. So, jumping right back in. Enjoy. Fantastic. So, back to the book. He makes to be nothing, worthless, despised, wretched, and dying. In this manner, no creature can work. No creature can produce anything out of nothing. Therefore, his eyes look only into the depths, not to the heights, as it is said in Daniel 3, verse 55, quoting the Vulgate. Thou sittest upon the cherubim and beholdest the depths. In Psalm 138, verse 6, Though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. And Psalm 113, verses 5 and 6, Who is like the Lord, our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down upon the heavens and the earth? For since he is the Most High, and there is nothing above him, he cannot look above him, nor yet to either side, for there is none like him. He must needs, therefore, look within him and beneath him. And the farther one is beneath him, the better does he see him. <laughs> There's another one of those paradoxes. Oof. Right. He's farsighted. He is, right? Oof. That's, that's yeah. Like, right. Yeah. But this is, but the, the parallel to this would be, you know, like the parable of the lost sheep, right? Yeah. Now, I mean, it, it, it runs contrary to reason. It, it actually doesn't make sense. Why would you mm-hmm. leave the 99 who are near to you to go after the one who's far from you? Right. Right. And not only leave them, but leave them, go get the lost sheep, go home with the lost sheep, have a party because you found the lost sheep. And by the way, no one's watching your sheep. <laughs> this isn't like a brief, I'm going to run off and I'll just run into the woods over there and grab the sheep and come back. This is a complete abandonment of the 99 sheep. Yeah, it's absurd. The key thing that, about what we were just talking about, for me, I think the key thing is no creature can work these things. Why? Because no creature can produce anything out of nothing. Yeah, we can only produce out of what God has given us, right? Right. This is why the philosopher says like attracts like. Hmm. That we are attracted to those things which we find attractive about ourselves. And again, we we seek out the company and the friendship and the relationships of those who affirm who we project ourselves to be to others. We don't want people around us who remind us of our true self. This is the problem with children, mm-hmm. is at some point, if you have any level of self-awareness, you will get in an argument with your child and you will recognize that you are arguing against yourself. You're actually arguing the way that your parents argued with you. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's the, it's yeah. the, the same It's the same old thing mm-hmm. uh, that uh, you refuse to repent of or change. Mm-hmm. And right. now your child is doing the same thing. Go figure. Right. right. Sins yes. of the father, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> but when it comes to then, as I was pointing out too, piety, holiness, all of these things, this also though is something that no creature can work in and of themselves. In fact, not even with the help of the Holy Spirit, because they simply don't exist in us. Right. So, uh, I mean, we're so desperate for 
improvement, change, renewal of life, mm-hmm. uh, maybe congregational, you know, improvement, whatever it is, sure. or, or even our own, like our own piety, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, let, we'd like to pray more or something like that. Right. And the the fallacy is that we think that we just need to work that up, you know, somehow. Right. Well, as I noted, when when I say go in the bathroom, turn on the lights and look in the mirror, what we tend to think when we look in the mirror is what you just pointed out. Well, I'm not going to try and make other people more pious or help other people become more holy. I'm going to work on myself becoming more pious and more holy. And then people will see my example of piety and holiness, and they'll want to then pursue that for themselves so they can be like me. Mm-hmm. Versus the opposite, which is go in the bathroom, turn on the light, look in the mirror, and be humbled by the fact that everything you have is a gift you deserve nothing and there is nothing in you that can affect this one way or the other yeah the fact that you're well even alive or you've made it this far right <laughs> uh is a miracle is a miracle yeah 100 percent. as my wife can testify to mm-hmm. as she says i originally thought i went to nursing school so that i could go and work at a hospital and be a nurse <laughs> It turns out that the Lord sent me, she actually says this, that God sent me to nursing school so that I could save you from killing yourself. Mm. (laughs) Because we save a fortune on medical bills. Because my wife is constantly patching me up. Yeah, and in hindsight, you know, we can say these sort of things. In the moment, we don't see it. No. No. After you've been married 20 years, you can laugh about it in the moment, even in the midst of pain. (laughs) But nonetheless, there's still that, really, again... (laughs) That's the, I mean, that's really the miraculous thing about the faith that that, that Mary um, confesses, right? Mm-hmm. Is that in that moment, before she, I mean, in in hindsight, you know, maybe after the resurrection, she could look back and say, oh, I see how God's will was done. I see how it all worked out for the good, right? Mm-hmm. But, but she still comes to collect him and bring him home. <sighs> yeah. She still yeah. says it's time to come home. Hmm. And there's that famous, that famous, uh, event then who are my mother and brothers and sisters snot nosed mm. punk how dare you <laughs> don't you know the stress and the anxiety and the frustration i was thinking longer term you know later on later I mean, on i mean there's a way that you can only reflect um realistically upon your life right. uh when it's in the rearview mirror you know right. and you've got some time and, right. and some separation right yeah you could argue post resurrection then then she gets it just like anybody else right like and and that's our struggle is like in the moment right. we say no this is actually pain right yes god and in the pious platitude of what i mean it's actually faithful too but it's a, right. but it's used as a platitude is well god works everything for the good right so <laughs> right. don't you know this will all be fine just mm-hmm. it's just a bump in the road you're like yeah well, no hmm. No, it doesn't feel that way in the moment. No, that's not how it is now. Well, and consider this too. Any parent knows when Simeon speaks to Mary and says that your heart will be pierced, like as with Mm -hmm. a sword. Yeah. Every parent knows what that means because every parent lives in constant terror that their child will die before they do. Mm -hmm. But she actually has to witness him die in front of her. Yeah, in the worst possible way. In the worst possible way. And yet, even in that moment, he says... you know, this is your mother and mother, this is your son. There's still that selflessness that is constant that no one really grasps until after the resurrection when he breathes on them and says, here, here's the Holy Spirit. And then their mind was enlightened to understand that everything was about him. But no, it's that constant from the moment of conception to 
the presentation in the temple to the wedding at Cana to when she comes to collect him and bring him home. It's a constant struggle, at least the way the gospel's presented in these snapshots. She ponders these things in her hearts, in her heart, which is her way of, I think, or at least the evangelist way of recording that she she remembers these things and only in, and only in hindsight she can reflect upon it. That's right, right. That's right. But she keeps them to herself. She she stores up all the information. Yes, so she can recall them back, you know, to St. Luke. But um, but also because I don't think she understands. I don't think she gets it. No, you like know? I said at the beginning, I can't understand the Lord's Supper. And that's relatively tame compared to what she went through. It's completely tame. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you ask my wife, which is more painful, giving birth or going to the Lord's Supper? <laughs> I mean, they're both life-changing events, but right. not in the same way. No. Right, exactly. So he, he must needs, therefore, look within him and beneath him. And the farther one is beneath him, the better does he see him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, coming out of the monastic tradition, this is something that a monk or a nun could readily agree with, but the the way that Luther twists it in, in what happens is you don't, this isn't a devotional practice. Humiliating yourself, self-humiliation is not the way to get to the bottom. Oh, who's the one who does the humbling? Exactly, exactly. Because as Luther knows from being a monk, the act of humbling oneself is an act of pride. It's an act of hubris because it's entirely yeah. selfish. That's what you call the negative theology of the cross. Right? 100%. Putting a cross on yourself, choosing your cross. Right. And this is why it's so dangerous for us to fall back on our piety, our beliefs, our holiness. Those are entirely selfish pursuits. We're not doing them for the sake of God. We're doing them because we see a loophole. Regardless if it is the, the sort of like, well, you know, look at how, how God has blessed me. You know, right. I, I, right. I, I'm wealthy, my children are faithful, da 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 da, da. Right. Um, Or it's the opposite. Well, you know, look how God has impoverished me and he's made me low and he's right. humiliated, you know, he's humbled me. Um, yeah. You know, and, and that, that shows how much God loves me too, right? Either way, <laughs> apart from a word of God. Right. It's a fundamental denial of reality or a fundamental rejection of reality, which is to say, this is a gift. It is what it is, period. And I mm. neither I neither judge it as elevating me above others or lowering me beneath others, but I simply accept and acknowledge this is all gift from the Father's hand. That's probably the thing that's really striking here for me is that um, he's not playing a comparison game. It's not right. Mary, Mary compared to others. Right, and that would right. be very medieval Catholic. I mean, Mary mm. is the, she's the queen of heaven. She's she's the one right, whom the, right, right. Whom it, you know, not only intercedes for us before Christ, that comes later, but, um, you know, she, the four living creatures surround her. Right, you know? so, like mm-hmm. she's got a seat next to the throne, basically. Mm-hmm. And they don't do that to honor Mary. They do that because, again, it opens a loophole for them. Mm-hmm. Right. How can I get closer? How can I get more heavenly rewards? How can I be more holy? And thus you get the hierarchy of saints. Mm-hmm. You, and the clerical you get, class. Right. Yeah. You get people actually organizing the chairs and the seating arrangements in heaven. <laughs> it's, it's like- Don't when, you know pastors get a, a, a higher seat? Right. You know? Yeah, of course. Mm. <laughs> But I, and I've had people ask me this in the class, in the past even of pastor, 
we're, when we get to heaven, how do you think we'll be seated? <laughs> Assigned like, seating. <laughs> right, right. That's so, one, that's so Midwestern Lutheran. <laughs> Yeah. Will there be assigned seating? Do I need to get there early so I get a good seat? And and two, Jesus actually has some things to say about taking the seat of honor. Yes, he does. There is that too. But do you ever have people that come to church early on Christmas Eve and just sit in the parking lot just so they get a good parking spot? <laughs> so they can get out afterwards? No, absolutely. One, because it fills up, right? So you end up parking farther away from the church doors, but also then, yeah, you end up at the back end of the parking lot. So you're having to wait for other people to get out. And so you got to show up early, but you don't go into the church early. You just sit in your car and listen to the radio or something and then come in five minutes before service starts. Or if you're really down and you've really got, you know, you got everything organized, you get there early and you know when people start to arrive to get in to get the good pew at the back, of course because there might be a quiz and you don't want the pastor to ask you questions. So you can get in and out of church quickly and get in and out of the parking lot quickly. Yeah, I remember one Christmas we got we got to church somewhat late. I don't know, remember why. Oh, did you have to do the, the walk of shame to the front of church? We had to sit in the very first pew. Yes. <laughs> the one that doesn't have a pew in front of it. So there's That's like, right, just exposed so. and naked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let, you know, stop speaking to us lest we die, pastor. Right, right. <laughs> What's that reality yeah. show? Is there a reality show called Exposed and Naked where they put like two people out in the woods literally naked? There's some, it's something out there like that. Like that. that would be the church version of that reality TV show. <laughs> Have you sat in the front row? <laughs> yeah. But think about how radical that is to say, well, the farther one is beneath God, the better he sees him. And even then we'll take that and turn that into something we can use to leverage, to transact with God. Hmm. Hmm. So to continue with the book, the eyes of the world and of men, on the contrary, look only above them and are lifted up with pride. As it is said in Proverbs 30, verse 13, there is a people whose eyes are lofty <laughs> and their eyelids lifted up on high. This, Luther writes, we experience every day, full stop. I love that one little sentence. We experience this every day. <laughs> That's so great because notice again the language of experience. Mm -hmm. Luther set you up in the first paragraph when he says Mary is speaking on the basis of her own experience. Again, he's setting us up because he knows that those who grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition, specifically monks, his colleagues, former monks, and his students, when they hear experience, that's a loophole. Oh, mm -hmm. we, we, we do something. And then he comes around and says, actually, what you do with your experience every day is look up rather than down. Mm. You, are, you are looking the opposite direction that God looks. And that's why you can't see him. Right. Not the experience of God looking upon you, but your experience of looking, trying to look upon yes. him. Yes. Looking mm -hmm. on God. Exactly. Yes. So we look up to find God, and yet he's below us. Hmm. Or thus, his, eyes, his eyes are upon those who are below us. Right. Well, not just that, but Jesus, like the actual person of Jesus is in prison, hungry, thirsty, and naked. He is Lazarus and the rich man, so to speak. Mm -hmm. right. We step over Jesus on our way to better things and better company. So then Luther continues, everyone strives after that which is above him, after honor, power, wealth, knowledge, a life of ease, and whatever is lofty and great. 
Mm, mm, mm. I love this stuff. Mm. Everyone strives after that which is above him. Everyone. Everyone strives. Everyone chases honor and power and wealth and knowledge and a life of ease and whatever is lofty and great. Everybody's working for the weekend. <laughs> right. Five days of the week, my life is a miserable hell. But those two days that I'm drunk <laughs> and in a stupor and putting garbage in my body and chasing after things that don't do anything for me as a human being to improve me, that's what I'm living for. Which, is that really living? Yeah, I've wondered about this. I mean, we, we do set apart the holidays, um, you know, for, for the recognition of, of God's word and, yeah. and to hear <laughs> right. following, you know, a calendar to hear, you know, all the acts that, right. of his His salvation of us. But, um, but that isn't exactly how we practice it, right? Because actually what we seek after right. is this. Well, it's like our friend... Um, our friend Eugene Peterson, who you're editing that stuff for Doxology right now, some of his interviews. Yeah, Eugene Peterson in his book, Under the Unpredictable Plant, points out that you're not making a living, you're making money. And whatever you can't make with money, you borrow or go into debt to have. And that's not living. That's just existing. Yeah, it's striving after um, what? I mean, Sugar that becomes a cause. In a way, but but mm -hmm. not only just our God. I mean, it's just trying to find life apart from the life giver. Right, and that's a great way to put it. To try and establish secure life for ourselves apart from the giver, the one who gives life, and then wondering aloud so often, especially in church, why our churches are dying. Mm. Especially right now, that's the hot topic, of course, is churches are in decline in the United States. And why are they in Where'd decline? Where did the kids go? Where yeah. did the kids go? Exactly. A refrain that's been ringing through the church since the late 70s. And yet we're still asking. Yeah, and arguably even before that, right? Yeah, I think every generation probably asked that <laughs> I'm a, question. I'm the only guy left. I'm in this cave and there's nobody else. <laughs> right. Only, only your right. little boys. Yeah, no one like, and his oh, wife yeah. are standing there on the ark. Where'd the kids? Mm -hmm. The kids, they don't even come home anymore. They don't even check in with us. Yeah, that's right. So everyone. That's what he turned. He turned, well, he turned the ark into like a condo. Right, that's thing. right. He sublet it. <laughs> 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 everyone strives after that which is above him. Oof. So then back mm -hmm. to the book. Where such people are, there are many hangers on. All the world gathers round them, gladly yields them service, and would be at their side and share in their exaltation. This is a perfect summary of what I was talking about with The Idiot by Dostoevsky. This is a summary of The Idiot by Dostoevsky. So even if you never read the book, this is a summary of the book. Go read Luther, volume 21, page 300. Actually, 299 and 300. That everyone looks above him. Everyone strives after honor, power, wealth, knowledge, a life of ease, what is lofty and great. And wherever those people are, there will gather around them hangers on. And it like like it would rub off on them or something, right? Yeah, right. You know, let's be around people who are clearly blessed because, you know, they'll right. have extra blessings for us then. Well, I was just watching a documentary. It's my favorite, one of my favorite documentaries called Restrepo about um, war in the Korangal Valley, this one company of, of uh, soldiers. And they have a term for people that are, are stationed back on the base, um, the forward operating base where... 
it's relative it's secure relative almost mostly mm-hmm. secure they have hot showers they have hot meals they have access to the internet and cable tv and they have no desire whatsoever to get in a firefight and they're called fobbits forward operating brave so the the and they're the ones who by the way have the most authoritarian attitude toward those below them and they love to wear their dress blues or whites, whatever the case may be. They love to wear their ribbons and their lapel, on their lapels and let everybody know their rank. And they lord it over others. And when combat soldiers then go back to the base for leave or whatever, this is a primary point of, con- of, of conflict. Because these forward operating soldiers who have been in combat and in the Korangal Valley, five to seven firefights a day every day they're under constant fire their their um their brothers are being killed they're being blown up they're being wounded and they go back then and these soldiers who have these comfy cush positions where there's no combat they're almost never under any threat of any danger whatsoever will then like beat them down and browbeat them because of their appearance or because they don't salute the proper way or they're not conducting themselves in the proper way and they'll lord it over them. They'll lord their rank over them, mm. and they call them fobbits. And in a certain sense, that's the same thing that happens here. Is And you know this as a pastor, that there are people that I look at who have never been pastors, who are teachers or or politicians within the church. And I, and this is my, my sin, I have almost no respect for them mm-hmm. whatsoever. I will be respectful toward yeah. them. I will treat them with respect, but I do not respect them because as far as I'm concerned, if you're not on the front lines, if you're not in the trenches, don't try and tell me how to pastor my congregation because you have no idea mm-hmm. what it's like. Mm-hmm. Now, you could tell me how you would like me to pastor you. Right, you know, right. And if it's faithful, you know, I can respond to that. But yeah, how I should be pastor to others, you have no business. Well, and, and the way I put it too, uh, I think, I can't remember who originally said it, but maybe it was C.S. Lewis. I think that's where I read it anyways, is you sound like a person who has read many books. And I would add to that then, you have a theoretical knowledge, but no practical experience in what you are attempting to apply now. You've read a lot of blogs. You've read a lot of blogs, a lot of articles. You've had conversations in the safety of your office or a cafe somewhere. But until you've gone out in a blizzard at two o'clock in the morning in order to sit next to someone who breathes their last breath into your face, and then you have to preach into that, don't try and tell me how to preach into that. Don't try and tell me what Mm -hmm. I did right or wrong. Because as we pointed out, as a pastor, you know, at a certain point, you're broken and and so damaged that the Lord forces you to repent of thinking that you've got to have the right thing to say at the right time to the right people versus yeah. whatever you are given to preach is what you are given to preach. And sometimes you're given nothing. <laughs> and as a pastor, you have to accept that because you have no yeah. choice. It's a, it's a hard thing to say, especially if you're kind of what, like a fix it kind of personality right. um, to just say, I, I, I don't even know what to right. say. I got nothing. And I, you know, I've got nothing because the Lord has given me nothing to right. say in this instance. Or to say, um, you know, let's open the scriptures. A hundred percent. Exactly. Let's open. Let's go to a psalm because I got nothing. That's why I love the pastoral care companion. Yeah, right. It's really helpful in those moments such as when you're in hospice or someone dies suddenly or you're holding a baby that's dying. And 
you want to weep with the family. You want to weep with the people that are there. And yet everyone turns, physically turns, actually turns towards you and looks at you with that look on their eyes of what, what next? What now? Or simply, what does God think of this? Right. Right. What does God think of this? Where is God? Why would Mm -hmm. God let this happen? Mm -hmm. All of these questions. And it's all written on your face and it's all learned from experience. Yeah. Yeah. So therefore, it is not without reason, Luther says, that the scriptures describe so few kings and rulers who were godly men. On the other hand, no one is willing to look into the depths with their poverty disgrace, squalor, misery, and anguish. From these, all turn away their eyes. Luther is almost at his most Pauline here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With the exclusive particles, all, everyone, nothing, <laughs> never. These are- It's a little aggravating, right? Because we want, we want a little bit of wiggle room. Exactly. But like I said, he's set you up to say, ooh, experience, or ooh, feelings, or ooh, I get to do something here. And then he comes in with the exclusive particles behind it and says, you do nothing. You create nothing. This is- I mean, really, I mean, how could Mary, apart from the Holy Spirit, say, oh, look, the Lord has done great things to me. Right, right. <laughs> You're like, uh, where, where the reality of what, what she sees is, um, this is not going to be easy. This right. Is, this is not even going to, this is going to be impossible. And perhaps most important for us in this matter then is the word of God always precedes what happens next. Mm. Mm. The angel speaks the word of the Lord to her. And with the word comes the spirit always. This is the, how does the word get into our hearts? The Holy Spirit plunges it into our hearts. And faith comes through hearing and hearing comes through the word of God. And therefore, whether, again, it be our piety or our holiness or whatever you want to claim for yourself, even our faith, nothing precedes the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and there's nothing that was created that was not created through him, including faith, holiness, repentance, everything. I don't know if it's puritanical. It, it strikes me as it, you know, that that we expect people to amend their life before they hear the word of God. <laughs> right. Before, before whether, uh, well, especially before the gospel. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the thing that's probably most scandalous and for, for non-Lutherans is that uh, that we actually don't believe repentance comes by the law. Yeah. But it comes by the gospel. And that, um, you know, apart from the forgiveness of sins, there is no repentance. Right. There, there might be an acknowledgement of like a brokenness or something like that. Right. Or, or just a wrongdoing. But it has um, no power it, to change your heart. Mm-mm. No, no. So again, the word has to precede faith. Right. It always precedes faith. Yeah. Well, when I ask, when I tell my children or I punish my children, for example, and I force them to repent because I'm bigger than they are, essentially, and they're afraid of mm-hmm. me because I'm their father and I'm bigger than they are. And now we have a room in our house with jujitsu mats in it. So I can't even begin to describe to you how much improved my children's behavior is since we installed mats. <laughs> Because now, rather than threaten them with punishment, which they're more than willing to take because they're my kids, now all I simply say is, do you want to go in the room and roll around? They're like, nope, we're good. We'll figure this out. I'm like, all right, good. And the point being, though, if I force them to repent, they will repent under the threat of violence, whatever that whatever shape or that violence takes. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't I don't hit my kids. I'm against hitting kids. 
but that violence can be taking away things that they hold dear to them, like their electronics or TV, right. or they don't get to go to jujitsu, or they've got to do extra chores, whatever it looks like. Mm-hmm. However, if I ask, why did you do that? What motivated you to, to say that to your brother? Or why did you do that to your sister? And then ask them, do you think, do you believe that what you just did is good? Is that really how you love each other? And they always say no. And then they give their, their rationale, their justification for why they did it. And then I ask them, (laughs) okay, but is there a way that we could have, is there a way that you could have worked this out with your sister or your brother that didn't end up with you doing this or that, because now you're getting in trouble for it. So can we talk about controlling your emotions and, and, and slowing down your thoughts? And, and then what ends up happening is they choose to repent because now they understand why. They've been given a moment to step back and reflect on that. And they recognize, I'm not going to drop the ban hammer on them and mm-hmm. punish them excessively, but rather I'm going to ask them, what do you think your punishment should be for this? And I'll give them the choice. You can ask for forgiveness and forgive each other and figure out how to do this together, or I can punish you and I'll, make, and I'll let you choose your punishment. So what do you want to do? And 100% of the time, they choose to work it out. And they're better off for it because now the next time it happens, they've thought through it, they've figured it out for themselves. And obviously this is an earthly example, not a a spiritual example, but it goes to the point, if we simply threaten one another with the law, we will repent in a way in the repentance that John preaches. Right. But it's a repentance that can't change your heart because it's simply saying, do this or else. And then we repent through gritted teeth. Versus when the gospel is preached to us and the forgiveness of sins is announced, like with the woman caught in adultery, like with the prostitute come and wash Jesus' feet with her with her tears, over and over again we see this. The lepers is that when Jesus shows them his favor, think of the dinner party of the tax collector. He mm-hmm. he gives Jesus says nothing. He says nothing in the way of law, and yet the, the tax collector repays everyone double, triple, quadruple what he owed them or what they owed him. Right. Why right. does he do that? Because he's in the presence of the one who showed him grace and truth. It's, so the point being is that you, no one was willing to look on the depths of their poverty, disgrace, squalor, misery, and anguish right. apart from Christ, apart from yeah. forgiveness. Exactly. Right? That's the only way you can look at these things not only realistically, but right. that you're even willing to consider, right? You know who you right. are. Uh, that's the only way you can have an honest self-reflection, right? Is, I think so. Is to is to have that come from outside. Because going back to the kids, this is one of our whatever you want to call it, a family maxim or motto or whatever, which is never above, never below, always beside. Hmm. And to effect real change, then. I can't stand over them and lord over them the fact that I'm bigger than they are and I'm their father and they have to do what I say. But I also can't lower myself and place myself beneath them because they're children. They need boundaries. They need discipline. They need guidelines. They'll run roughshod over me. But if I stand with them in that moment and ask, hey, maybe you're not looking at it from the right perspective. And I've gone through this uh, 10,000 times myself. So let's take a step back and let's ask some questions. Let's try and get to the root of this. And let's dig it up, you know, throw it away. So we were talking off the air about, um, or and we mentioned it already on this show too, about children leaving the church. Um, so yeah. I asked the confirmands, I said, well, why do you go to church? You know, 100% of the time it's because my parents make me, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, yep. well, there you go. <laughs> let's, let's think of, maybe, listen to this, you know, Jesus is here to give you gifts, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you like receiving gifts? Yeah, I like receiving gifts. Well, here are the gifts that he gives: forgiveness, life, salvation through you know the means of of the Spirit. And um, that's really why you're here. Even though you think it's because your parents made you here, it's actually because the Holy Spirit has called you, right? And he wants and he wants you here because um, to, to receive God's favor, to receive right. His grace, right? And uh, but you know, how many times am I going to have to say that before the the kids finally like, right. oh, you know what? I actually kind of. You're right. Right. I guess my parents say I have to, but really I'd rather just go because because it's a good thing for me. And this is a key point that you bring up in relation to the third commandment then, because the Luther translates Sabbath as feast day mm-hmm. in the German. Yeah, it does. And that for me is my introduction into what you were talking about with my compromands, is to introduce them to you don't come to church because God commands you to honor the Sabbath. You come to church because it's the feast day. And the feast opens up then Oh, it's a you're, it's a receiving day is what it is. The Sabbath mm-hmm. is a day to, to reflect on all you've received, not all that you've done. And I, even then, I mean, is there a threat for not keeping the third commandment? Of course there is. Yeah. But can can the threat actually bring about... Um, True repentance? Know, a change of heart? A change of heart? No. Yeah. Um, so that's what Luther does with the explanation, you know, that we should... What with the third commandment? How's it go? Yeah. Gladly hear and learn God's word in preaching. <laughs> yeah. Well, how's that going to happen? Right. I, that's a work of the Spirit, too. It has to be. Right. Well, and where is it in the prophet, too, that, oh, no, the thought th- slips, slipped away from my mind, but hmm. it's the same basic principle, which is when you treat the Sabbath mechanically, well, I have to obey the Sabbath, otherwise I'll be punished. Versus, mm. no, it's a gift that we receive the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We say, as you pointed out, yes, there is a threat, but it's the old Adam who hears it as threat. Mm-hmm. The new That's man right. in Christ rejoices in the giftedness of the day. Right. And so rather than TGIF, it's thank God every day is our Sabbath rest in Christ. Mm. Nice. nice. So... He says, no one, going back to the book, no one is willing to look into the depths with their poverty, disgrace, squalor, misery, and anguish. From these, all turn away their eyes. Where there are such people, everyone takes to his heels, forsakes and shuns and leaves them to themselves. No one dreams of helping them or of making something out of them. And so they must remain in the depths and in their low and despised condition. There is among men no creator, who would make something out of nothing. Although that is what St. Paul teaches in Romans chapter 12, verse 16, when he says, Dear brethren, set not your mind on high things, but go along with the lowly. Which I, when I read this uh, in prep for the show, I thought that should actually be what higher thing, that should be the name for higher things is higher things for lowly people. <laughs> or... Lowly, yeah, lowly things. Lowly things, yeah. Yeah. But this this is the thing, at least anecdotally, this is what I'm attacked for most often as a pastor is, and I also want to get to this point about it is what it is in, in the sense of reality too, because we can fall into either ditch. We can either rejoice in glory in the fact that we're, we're on the right path, so to speak, and that we don't have these kinds of people 
people that are disgraceful mm. and poor and live in squalor and are miserable and constantly suffering, anxious people. We don't have these kinds of people at our church because our our church is spiritually healthy. And we're, and yeah, we're, we've, got, we've got our act together. Yeah. Or the opposite ditch, which is, and I want to point this out before I get to my anecdote, or we jump into the other ditch and glory in the fact that the only people that come to our church are poor and disgraceful and live in squalor and are miserable and anxious because that proves then that we're on the right path. The danger is not one way or the other, but both ways. There is a danger, there is a temptation to glory in that which you are not. So you yeah. can either glory in the fact that you're not like that big mega church on the corner, or actually not the corner that takes up the half the city block, or you glory mm. in the fact that you're not that little church on the corner with 30 members that struggles to pay mm. the bills. Both, though, are a theology of glory. Both are the old Adam. And yeah. if we look at Christ's own ministry, there is no distinction. He right. makes no distinction. Exactly. It's, and it, not Jew, Gentile, not sinner, saint, right. Right, however, you know, in the world right. of And yeah. in my congregation, I'm most often criticized for taking in strays and misfits <laughs> that other churches reject or, or drive out. And yet simultaneously, I have an investment banker in my church, and I have a person who runs his own veterinarian clinic, and I have those two. And... Uh, yeah, even 10 years in, I still joke about the fact that I can minister to those who are lowly and live in squalor and are disgraceful. I get those folks because I grew up that way. The The people I have trouble ministering to, and I readily admit it to them, is those who are successful yeah. and enjoy six-figure incomes and have enough that they can actually put their kids through college. Like hmm. Those are the ones I struggle with. And so I see in myself the temptation to jump into the ditch of squalor and misery because like attracts like, and I can relate to those people. Which is uh, maybe why in the in the old practice, you know, the, uh, the, the with the tithing model, right? With the mm -hmm. 10%, everybody, if everybody gives 10%, then the pastor is neither the lowest income or the highest income. That's right. He's right, he's right at the median. There you go. You know? Right. And uh, so maybe you can identify with everyone. I don't know. Well, we, you and I don't have to worry about that because we're way <laughs> below the median. Right. So, but this, to me, this is the key point then that we forsake and shun and leave them to themselves. No one dreams of helping the disgraceful, the those who live in squalor, the miserable, the anxious, the those who live in anguish and are poor. No one thinks of helping them. However, we also then, if we're on the other side of the street, think, well, I would never cross the street to help someone who's rich, who is profitable and successful, who doesn't need anybody's help, etc. Yeah. There's always the temptation to glory in your suffering as much as there is to glory in your success. Rather than simply acknowledge, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Yeah. I mean, the, the temptation or the struggle of faith, I suppose, um, is just as challenging for the one who is impoverished to the one who is wealthy. Right. right? There's plenty, plenty, of, plenty of parables about, you know, easier for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than, or it'd be a poor man. It? It's easier for, for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man, than to, for enter a rich man to enter heaven. And yeah. yeah, to the point, when you are chosen to suffer and be persecuted for Jesus' sake, rejoice, we're told that. And yet, mm -hmm. when you are given much, much is expected of you. So don't get ahead of yourself, <laughs> but recognize whatever you have, whatever you have been given, one is all gift from the God's fatherly hand, and two, you are, in point of fact, insignificant, lowly, poor, and inferior. Regardless of your actual earthly. In relation to God. Mm -hmm. In relation to your neighbor, you can be high or low or walk with them, but in relation to God, you are 
insignificant. The the if, if you ask God what is the meaning of my life, He will tell you forty two. That's that's what mm-hmm. it comes down to. <laughs> Did I do enough, Lord? Forty two. What? I thought Jesus was thirty three. <laughs> <laughs> but no, this is what we do. It's just, it's the temptation to jump into one or the other ditch because as Luther points out, we want to live and we want to live at any cost. So how is it that Elizabeth can say to Mary that, you know, that she's blessed among women? Yeah. Well, because the Lord has done great things to her. Right. 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 And yet there's a dichotomy in that statement in and of itself because the Lord has done great things for her, but in relation to the uh-huh. world... Not so much. Yeah, he's done some pretty made made <laughs> made a bad life choice. The high priest, for her. the high priest, does not adopt Mary. Herod does not call off his assassins when he discovers that it's Mary who is most blessed of God. Mm-hmm. There, there is nothing about Mary's life that is glorious in a worldly sense. Yeah, yeah. It's back to the book. Therefore, to God alone belongs that sort of seeing that looks into the depths with their need and misery and is near to all that are in the depths, as St. Peter says, 1 Peter 5, verse 5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Hmm. And this is the source of men's love and praise of God. Notice Luther says, to God alone belongs this sort of seeing. Mm-hmm. to cut off the monks and to cut off the mystics. You cannot look into yourself and you cannot go around looking into the depths for the needy and the miserable. You are incapable. It is impossible for us to do that. Only God can do that. Because ultimately we, we all play the comparison game. 100%. Right? 100%. Mm-hmm. And God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And for myself, again, full disclosure, <laughs> When I read that sentence, when I commit that to memory, it drives me to engage in activities that humble me, to literally put myself in a position to be made of no importance, to be shown my insignificance, my weakness, my flaws, whatever it might be, because I don't ever want to be in a position where I try and stand in the place of God. Mm. And yet... The whole reason I do that, going back to what I said earlier, is so that at the end of the day, I can say, yeah, I don't have a lot going for me, but at least I'm humble. <laughs> mm, right. I was going to say, I mean, who who, uh, who can accept these words? Right. Um, 100%. 100%. Because even the pursuit of being humbled <laughs> is a pursuit of being humbled. It's selfish. And again, mm-hmm. in an earthly sense, in relation to your neighbor, pursue humility. Pursue, sure. situa- put yourself in situations that humble you for the good of your neighbor. Because being a humble person, being humbled, I should say, will make you a better husband, father, pastor, neighbor. It will, because you'll put other people before yourself, because you will see other people as being more important than you. In relation to God, it doesn't cut. Because even the pursuit of humility will become transactional. Even that has been tainted by sin. Right. right? And Luther, being a, a monk himself, knows the pursuit of humility is one of the cornerstones of the monastic life. This is why you whip yourself, you fast, you pray out in the snow in your underwear for three days, all of these things. Yeah. It's kind of like the, the Pharisees who like to pray with their long prayers at the street corners. Yep. <laughs> Back to the book. This is the source of men's love and praise of God. No one can praise God without first loving, well, God. 
No one can love God unless he makes himself known to him in the most lovable and intimate fashion. And he he can make himself known only through those works of his which he reveals in us and which we feel and experience within ourselves. But where there is this experience, namely that he is a God who looks into the depths and helps only the poor, despised, afflicted, miserable, forsaken, and those who are nothing, there there a hearty love for him is born. The heart overflows with gladness and goes leaping and dancing for the great pleasure it has found in God. There the Holy Spirit is present and has taught us, in a moment, such exceeding great knowledge and gladness through this experience. Hmm. This is it. Why do people who are impoverished, why do people who are oppressed and marginalized, why are people who are under the eminent reality of execution and death, the most devout? Hmm. (laughs) And the answer is because they have nothing left. Nothing. Their own individual experience um, can give them no confidence, no Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's the Holy Spirit who is present and who teaches us in a moment exceedingly great knowledge and gladness through this experience. But the experience is the experience of being nothing, poor, despised, afflicted, miserable, forsaken. It's kind of like uh, John the Baptist in prison, right? That's what um, I was thinking of, because that's the text I'm preaching on for the yeah, third all, Sunday in Advent. There, there's all sorts of you know hand-wringing about, well, did he doubt or did he believe? Mm-hmm. And the reality is, I mean, he's in prison, and he, he points his disciples away from himself to Christ. Right, right. right. And I don't think we appreciate what it means to be in prison in the first century. <laughs> and no. it's not like the shows you see on Nat Geo or CNN or MSNBC or something like that, life behind bars kind of thing. It's like life is today in the Middle East in prison and places in Africa and South America where essentially there's just piles of the dead and people crawling and scratching and clawing for food and climbing over each other. And there's essentially no real prison guard oversight. They're kind of on the walls. This is when they throw in the hole and throw away the key. Exactly. You're in there and their job is just to keep you from getting out. Their Mm -hmm. job is not to take care of you and make sure your basic human needs are being met. And especially for one marked for execution, what's the point anyway? You're going to die. Why waste our resources and time on you? No, they might keep you alive just to have a a uh, little bit more fun at the execution. No, I mean, if you're already much. dead, I mean, right. that, that would that would steal your, the thunder of the whole thing. Right, but. right. <laughs> There's actually a documentary, you can watch it on YouTube, about a Middle Eastern executioner. That's his job. He's an executioner. And it's a very interesting documentary in the sense that he has a wife and kids that he goes home to every night. And if you didn't know what he did, you would assume he's probably a taxi driver or he works as a clerk in a convenience store or something like that. He's just a normal, ordinary man who every morning gets up, kisses his kids on the forehead and sends them off to school and kisses his wife and goes and he executes people all day long and then goes home at the end of the day. No cognitive dissonance there. It's it's amazing. But yeah, I I watched that in preparation for the sermon. Just... (laughs) Get a point of perspective that, yeah, you're right, that 
everything has been stripped away from John. In fact, if you want to go down the path of John doubting or questioning, he was sent ahead to prepare the way of the Lord. And he's going to be executed. And Jesus simply says, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lepers are healed, the the dead are brought back to life, and the poor hear the gospel. Yeah. And that the way the way of Christ's ministry is actually, uh, that prophetic pattern is right there in John. Right, right. That, it, that his, the way of saving is through suffering and death. Right, right. That's the mechanism of salvation. And, and if you go the route of faith, as you pointed out, the baptizer points his disciples to Jesus because his disciples need to hear this. Mm-hmm. Because he's done. He's done. He's run his race, to quote Paul, and now it's time for him to go. <laughs> he ran his ministry into the ground. <laughs> literally, yes. He literally preached his head off. Dun, dun, dun. Therefore, he has nothing left to tell them. He has nothing left to preach to them other than, I must decrease that he may increase. And at that point, that is the point, that mm-hmm. his his decrease results in death, as does all of us. And therefore, if we are not pointing to Christ and we point to ourselves, Christ decreases and so that we may increase there's still going to come that tipping point where we ourselves have to go down into the grave. Yeah. And and then where will people look? Because when they look at the grave, there's no word. There's nothing forthcoming. But, well, that's where you put tombstones. Right. Yeah, right. Right. Versus, so at least you can say some final words. <laughs> right. Versus I must decrease even into death that Christ may increase to the point of resurrection from the dead. Mm-hmm. That death is the ultimate testimony to our faith. It's the ultimate testimony to the power of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. That's ultimately the the way that God humbles us. It is ultimately because even in saying I must decrease that he may increase, I can glory in that too. Mm. Look, I'm making less of myself so that Jesus can be more. But by saying that, you're making more of yourself than Jesus. Yeah, because there you are putting yourself into yes. Look at me. The, the whole mechanism. Right. It's like we were watching a football game last night, and uh, the announcers, retired football guys, every time they would praise someone on the field, they would do it by reflecting on their own career. <laughs> I've never noticed that, but and, that's great. And that's why I said to my son, because he loves this stuff, I, I can't stand watching football anymore. I just said, this is why I can't watch football. I might be able to watch mm. it with the volume turned off, but they're always talking about themselves. They're narcissists. It's interesting because the commentators on uh, uh, the Chicago Cubs, the radio broadcast, the the older guy always asked the younger guy who's retired. They're both retired baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, did you ever do that <laughs> when there's right. like a great play? Right. He's like, you know, or or you know something. It's like, do you ever do that? Why are you always pointing back at like whether he did it or not? Right. <sighs> It's just, but that's it, that's their thing. It's like I, I saw on Instagram this morning. It's just, what we do end up doing as Christians, as old Adam baptized old Adam sinners is. It's like posting a, a meme on social media that says, "I don't care what anybody thinks about me," and then the the thought bubble where the person says, <laughs> "I sure hope a lot of people like and share this." <laughs> that's, oh, that's something. That's that's our piety in a nutshell. <laughs> is that, yes, we believe Jesus is our Savior. Yes, we believe only the Holy Spirit can affect these changes in us. However, there's there's the but of the old Adam, but. <laughs> there's got to be something that I need to do, right? Mm. Even if it's just Good saying amen, 
even if it's decreasing, I still get to do that, right? So I think that's that's a good place to end because that's a lot, especially for Christmas. That's a lot. It's not something that we necessarily talk about at Christmas time. Um, this is no. most definitely my Christmas Eve sermon, but... Well, you can see, I mean, you see it in, uh, I think the intent, uh, we should see it in the manger, right? Yes. The Christ made himself of, of low estate. Yes, yes, um, exactly. That we would be exalted in him, right? So he takes he takes our place. He has that, they have right. that whole substitute motif. Right. Now he goes into the place of humility and shame. He goes into death right. to bring us to life. And that's the key point is that there's no one so low that Jesus cannot pick them up. <laughs> right. Because he's been there. He's he, been there. Exactly. He goes there. Oh, he is there. He is there. He meets us there, as the psalmist says, I descend into the abyss. You are there. I ascend to the top of the mountain, and you are there. I go as far as the east is from the west, and you are there. That this is the comfort of Christmas. The comfort of Christmas is that no matter how low you are, no matter how poor, despised, afflicted, miserable, or forsaken you are, he that is a description of Jesus, not you. Mm-hmm. He became stricken, smitten, and afflicted for you. He took your spot there. And therefore, in your poverty, in your dispossession, in your affliction, in your misery, it's not you, it's Christ who suffers that for you. And therefore, you can say it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And therefore, the life I live now, I live by faith, through faith in the one who sacrificed for me. He sacrificed himself for me, everything for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the key point there is people come to Christmas at church and they come expecting one thing. And with a minimum amount of effort and attention, we can give them the gospel in such a way that despite what they want, we give them what they need, which is reality, which is Mm. the truth. And the truth is, this is Jesus, and this is what is here for you. It's here every Sunday for you. That whole thing you're so desperately trying to keep together. Right, right. This, 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 your Christmas celebration. you know, he's already done it. Right, right. Exactly. He penetrates through the superficial, the artificial reality that you're attempting to, you're constantly attempting to uphold and perpetuate Mm -hmm. and says, you can put your burden down now. I see you. I know who you are. I made you. Let's take a break. Let's take a break. Right. hundred percent. And that going back to what we were talking about with the Sabbath rest, that's it in a nutshell. Let's take a break. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's. Don't worry. I know the roast in the oven. Right. Right. A hundred percent. That's right. The roast is in the oven. <laughs> That's right. Well, now you put it in the slow cooker, so at least then it might not dry out. <laughs> yes, that's true too. We're having leg of lamb for Christmas this year. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, right. Irony. And <laughs> uh, we we receive the lamb of God for the forgiveness of sins, and then we go home and we eat a lamb, of, a lamb from God. With mint and rosemary. You know it. It's going to be delish. Delich. So... Uh, I got nothing else. You got anything else, Dad? No, that's great. All right. As always, thank you for listening to us. Thank you for supporting us the past year and change that we've been doing as Lutheran as it gets. Uh, Thank you for the comments and the emails and all of the support you show us. That is really for us the greatest gift that you could give us is the encouragement and the appreciation you show us. And it's Mm -hmm. why we do this. As we've said before many times, we, we have this conversation without you listening in, but we share this conversation with you in the hope that it does give you some comfort and consolation and point you to Christ. 
and hopefully maybe listening to others be open and honest about our own struggles with Christ mm. and with the faith and so forth, that also frees you up to go to your pastor or your brother and sister in Christ and confess to them that you have burdens and you want to put them down or take a break, as we say, and that <laughs> the house of the Lord is the place to do that. And God has sent you a preacher to preach the good news about Jesus to you, especially this time of year. So Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas Tide, because as we point out to our own people, Christmas is not a day or two days. It has a length to it, which I call... Let's keep partying. Which I call vacation time. (laughs) (laughs) That is my gift. But nonetheless, yeah, I hope, uh, we both hope that this has been a benefit to you and that you benefit from it and that you're helped by it. And if nothing else, point you back to Jesus because that's why we're here. So come back next week for a brand new episode. And as always, our Lord Jesus Christ bless and keep you in his baptismal grace today and always. And we'll see you next time. Peace.